This is Andre Cohen, and I want to say welcome to another episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion at the Mayo Clinic. In this episode, I spent some time talking with a friend of mine, uh, Kate Trudeau, who is an employment law attorney in Racing, Wisconsin. I was really interested to see what diversity and inclusion looks like in a quasi-rural community. So uh, without further delay or further ado, let's get right into this uh, interview with Kate Trudeau uh, and as we talk about and explore diversity and inclusion at the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, so um, I practice in Racine, Wisconsin. Um, I practice in a small firm. I I practice employment law, so um, most people don't know what that means. What it means um, kind of practically is I help uh, small businesses in in Kenosha, Racine, Milwaukee area um, with uh, understanding the laws and and kind of how to comply with the laws. Most small companies don't have uh, legal departments or really even HR departments, so to speak. They'll have one person that kind of handles HR for them um, with a limited understanding of, of what that means from a legal perspective. So they'll consult with us in developing policies um, and procedures and kind of doing both tactical and strategic things for the company to make sure that they're in compliance with the law, um, protected, and that they're, you know, um, taking care of their employees to the best of their ability. So given the polarized atmosphere that we're in right now, what are you finding as some of the key issues that, particularly in our rural areas, need to be addressed, or what are some issues that they're wrestling with right now? Yeah, I guess um, the most effect I've seen from the the political climate climate has to do with um, you know employers in regards to like immigration reform and um, just making sure that all their immigration, all their I nine employment verification stuff is you know done properly. And I don't mean that their employees are um, eligible to work necessarily, but that everything's filled out correctly because there's increased oversight in that area. Um, you know, surprisingly, like the Me Too movement, I don't see a lot of um, increase in discrimination complaints. Um, I see it a little bit and, and I kind of, you know, try to give my clients a heads up that, hey, we need to be really cognizant of this because it's a, it's a big issue right now. Things are starting to come out. So we need to make sure that you have the policy procedures in place so that you're aware when things are happening and kind of can address them head on because, that's been a lot of the focus of the Me Too movement is not just that these things are happening, but that these things are being completely swept under the rug by big organizations, therefore, thereby making them kind of complicit in um, the discrimination and, and the harassment. So I assume that people know how to act, that we know how to treat each other. And so I would have thought that by now, sexual harassment training would have been a thing of the past. Like we wouldn't even have to deal with sexual harassment so what do you think is the, the impetus for the Me Too movement really gaining traction um, and, and exposing how a lot of people who thought that sexual harassment training wasn't necessary are now finding themselves not only in need of sexual harassment training, but recognize that it goes beyond just the training. So, so how do you think the Me Too movement has really sparked that in, um, in today's society? Well, I think that, um, you know, 
perspectives being different from my perspective before the Me Too movement, I, I would have told you that it is still an issue in the workplace, not necessarily from my legal work, but from my, you know, 10 years in corporate America um, before that is I, I experienced a lot of it. I saw um, many people get fired for it. Um, so so I do think that before the Me Too movement, to me, it was still a very real thing. Um, I think the the presence or the availability of social media and the ability to be a little bit ambiguous but have a platform to talk about issues, um, just like Black Lives Matter and just like um, other kind of social issues, um, it's a platform for it to talk about it in a way that's a little bit less confrontational um, and a little bit more comfortable for people, even though it's a little counterintuitive because it's kind of public, but at the same time, you're not sitting down across the table from your aunt and uncle and, and telling them something, but they're still seeing the message. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. I don't think that it ever went away. So how do you help organizations deal with you know stuff like uh, affirmative action? How do you introduce those concepts or even have them think about diversity and inclusion as things that they should be worried about, particularly, again, as it relates to the tool we have at our disposal, which is affirmative action? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a challenge. Um, you know, I think the biggest challenge is that people aren't as forthcoming with whatever um, whatever racism, sexism, whatever ism that they that they believe in or they hold true or is part of their um, their guide, um, they're not forthcoming with it. Uh, so it's hard to determine, you know, is is that shaping their beliefs about employment or about their their employment culture? So, um, so I think that's the most difficult part. Is affirmative action is a really ambiguous term that we use, um, and the government has told us we we need to take affirmative action, but has not really given us any guidance for what that means. Um, so. I think people are afraid to to do anything. So if people are afraid to use the affirmative action plan, what tools or resources are they using to make sure that they have an inclusive or diverse workforce? Well, I think, you know, they have most companies will have a, a policy that says they're an equal opportunity employer, um, which is great. It, you know, it kind of raises the awareness of, um, of the issue, but I mean, honestly, are there are there tools that they that companies are using? Small companies, not not necessarily. Are they keeping track of you know um, the race of or the gender of the people who are applying and then kind of analyzing that? Not really, mostly because they don't have the means, and to them, it doesn't seem like a large issue. They're looking at they you know they're looking at each applicant as an applicant, not based on their their race and gender or, you know, any other protected class that they might be a member of. Um, the problem with that is that there's, we all have implicit bias, right? Like, you know, I might not believe that I have a bias against one type of person, but it's there. Um, so it's hard to, to kind of, you, you can't create a chart to, to say, well, my implicit bias is, 
is putting this person two points down. So you really, you know, have to challenge, well, what are the things I can quantify about this candidate or this employee um, to, tr to make it fair, to, to counteract or offset that, that bias? So, Kate, you just dropped two big bombs. One was this idea of implicit bias, and I think we'll circle back to that. The other piece that you you kind of dropped in the middle of that conversation was this idea of a protected class. And is a protected class the same as a minority? Is a minority a protected class? What, what, what's the difference between that norm that that, that nomenclature how, how do we how should we be talking about those people we want to bring into our organization that have historically not been a part of our organizations okay so a protected class um, is it's actually defined uh, by by the government you know the federal government um, has created through a variety of different laws um, classes of people that because of either historical oppression or their minority status um, deserve extra protection, basically a second look, you know, so if something happens to this particular group of people, um, let's look at it and say, is it because of their historical oppression or is it because of some discrimination against this group of people? Um, so, you know, the federal government has said that, you know, someone's race, someone's religion, their national origin, age, sex, pregnancy, citizenship, uh, familial status, disability status, um, all of those things, veteran status, all of those things um, put them in this protected class of people. So I'm still a little bit confused. So you're saying that a minority may or may not be a protected class. So can you talk more about that? And I'm still looking for some clarity. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive or inclusive, um, you know, obviously gender, female, um, well, gender, so here's the funny thing about protected class. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, that women are in a protected class. It's that sex is a protected class. So it could be that the discrimination is against the male gender. But if they're discriminated based on uh, discriminated against based on their sex in some way, that's impermissible. Same thing with race. We think when we think about protected class and discrimination, we think, well, you know, um, African-American people are discriminated against. Well, that's very well, very true. But the protected class is race. So someone could argue that they were discriminated against based on their Caucasian race. Um, now you have kind of an uphill battle because you don't have a, a history of oppression and discrimination in the same way that you do for um, for the other races. So it's just something to keep in the back of your mind that it's not necessarily the minority race, the minority gender, the minority um, uh, the minority national origin or religion or anything like that. It's just the classification. It, is protected. So you know you're blowing some minds, right? Like you're, you're hurting people. So what you're suggesting is that those people who say that they suffer from reverse discrimination may in fact have a point? I mean, is that, is, is that what you're, you're, you're hinting at? I mean, from, from a legal perspective, they have an argument. I can say that. Um, 
from from a personal perspective um, potentially but again because there's not that kind of um, there's not a history of oppression and a history of discrimination they have a hard time proving that they were in fact dis discriminated against you know it's going to be a case-by-case -case determination but I mean there there could certainly be situations where um, you know an employer is primarily female and they discriminate against a male um, like let's say nursing um, it, we have a profession that's primarily female um, a, a male employee or uh, let's just say employee could say hey I, I was discriminated against based on my gender um, now the male gender is not one we typically think of as being oppressed or discriminated against we think of them as kind of um, the oppressor um, but in that situation he very well could have been discriminated against because of his gender and that wouldn't be incorrect but it would be very fact wow you're causing us to think i mean um, that's dangerous that's dangerous stuff getting people to be critical thinkers uh and i also want to thank you for not giving us you know uh legal advice right <laughs> It was a learning curve for me, too, because like coming out of law school, I was like, I got a client call and, and they said they had an employee who was a, a white female um, that was claiming discrimination. And I was like, that, that don't even worry about that. That can't happen. And then it was pointed out to me that it, it's not um, it's not what race you are. It's, it's your race. That's the protected class. So um, I, I had to kind of stop myself and say, oh, well, yes, I guess that could be an issue. Okay, here's a chance for a mic, mic drop. Do you think that we still need things like the EEOC or affirmative action? Are those things even relevant in today's world? Do, do um, Yeah, I think more than ever. I mean, like I said earlier in the conversation, um, discrimination is more taboo now. It makes it harder to determine the, the motives of the decision makers, right? So like, they're not gonna come out and say, well, I'm not gonna hire that person because they're X, Y, or Z. They're gonna come up with a million different reasons why that person is not a good fit. Um, so I, I do think it's important. Um, and, and moreover, the effects of centuries upon centuries of oppression of you know people of color and women and people of different religions don't disappear over, overnight um you know we forget it's we we say oh well the 60s was so long ago but we forget that people there are people living in our country today that weren't allowed to apply much less gain admission to certain schools they weren't allowed to work at certain jobs uh own homes in certain neighborhoods or own homes at all um people remember not being able to drink from the same drinking fountain as another human being it, it hasn't been that long um and even if it had been you know, 200 years from the equal rights movement and 400 years since slavery, um, the trauma caused by oppression just doesn't disappear. Uh, I'm not a psychologist, but it's, it's interesting. There's been some, some research into the fact that trauma crosses generations. Trauma, not only in, you know, the way families interact, but also in, in the DNA of the people. It, it mutates DNA. It changes DNA. So, I mean, I know that's really deep and goes a little bit further, but I do think that these protections are necessary. I don't think that um, it's something we can say, well, everyone's kind of equal now. I, we're good. You know, everyone has the same opportunities. It's just, 
it's not true. It's not true from a cultural perspective and it's not true from a biological perspective. So I've heard lots of people talk about this idea of fit in a number of different ways. And I'm wondering, is fit, how does fit fit in (laughs) with this idea of developing an inclusive or diverse workforce? Like is, can fit be problematic when we're looking at developing an inclusive and uh, diverse workforce? Right. Yeah. And I, I do think it's a problematic word and an idea because yes, you, you want someone who's going to make your company better, but, um, the idea of fit does seem like we want the same. We want, we want the same type of people, which then perpetuates kind of this, um, this privilege and this, um, it's a continuation of the way things have always been done. So I, I do think it's problematic to use that term fit. And, and I think the solution as much as it can be a solution is to have people that are willing to challenge what that means. What does that mean for this particular person, um, for this particular role? What are the goals um, of the company? And, you know, is diversity one of them? Is inclusion one of them? So now I'm going to come back to this implicit bias. So first of all, what is implicit bias and how have you seen it um, kind of develop as as you're working with your clients around developing a diverse workforce? How do you or, or what impacts do you see happening as a result of implicit bias as your clients are looking at their human resource um processes? So from a legal perspective, I don't have a great answer. It's not something that's really been defined really well in, um, in, in the legal kind of realm. You know, I think, uh, you know, you, you spoke about it at a conference last year, and I think it's, it's starting to creep its way in, particularly, particularly in criminal law. You know, it's just starting to get footholds in there within the criminal justice system. But as far as like employment law, you know, I don't hear that term a lot. Um, so, and it's really hard then if, if the term isn't even, um, isn't even known to then try to convince people that they have it, right? Because nobody wants to hear that they have implicit bias. Um, but so yeah, it's it's not real. It's not it's not a strongly recognized term, to my understanding. So as an employer, why should I even be concerned with implicit bias if there's no uh, legal ramifications of the, the this bias that I have? Why would I even want to, as an employer, engage in having conversations about implicit bias? Well, I mean, I think you you care about implicit bias if you if if you want your organization to um, to grow into the future, um, because it's going to affect uh, the perspectives within your organization. So if you want to have a wide variety of perspectives within your organization, you have to explore the idea that you have certain biases um, towards certain groups of people and kind of explore um, those biases, uh, biases, I don't, I don't know the right word, um, towards those groups and, and then move past them, you know, and then say, okay, well, this is, I feel this way because of, you know, this in within myself and 
it doesn't help me move forward. So I have to set it aside so that I can move forward for what's best for the company. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think to grow, to grow the organization, to create a workplace that's diverse and inclusive, you have to explore the idea that, um, that you have your own, your own implicit bias. Whether or not that's ever going to be something that the court recognizes, that I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to quantify. It, it's a social science, right? Harvard does studies on implicit bias, and there's findings that say, yes, we think this exists, but to try to quantify it and then apply it to any one person, you know, we can't do a blood test that says, yes, you have implicit bias on it. So I know personally from our interactions offline and outside of this this sphere of uh, outside of this conversation that you've been on this social justice journey that you you're really looking at ways that um, both as an attorney, but more so as a human being, how you can engage in social justice activities. And so what was it that started you on your journey towards looking at um, diversity and inclusion and equity? What, what was it that was, uh, what propelled you into this? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I had a kind of a unique opportunity in life. Um, in that um, I kind of I grew up in a neighborhood that was um, uh, very colorful. Um, I, w- I was surrounded by a lot of uh, people of color. I was, you know, one of a handful of Caucasian students in in my grade, and I got to experience, um, you know, kind of I don't want to say immersion, but I got to experience a lot of other cultures. Um, in that way. And I think for me, I, I just grew an appreciation for, for those cultures. So for me, it's important to then acknowledge that, you know, my first best friends, um, you know, have, have struggles that I don't have, and they have perspective that I want to hear um, in order for me to kind of understand the world around me. So, so for me, that's important to kind of explain that I, w- I was having a conversation with a, a friend last week and they were doing some implicit bias training at school he, he's a teacher so um, we were talking about it and um, I said you know like first admitting that you have this implicit bias is key you know when I am driving in my car um, and I roll up to a, a stoplight and I see a man younger man, black or white, standing on the curb, maybe waiting to cross the street, my instinct is to lock my door. Regardless of whether or not, you know, that guy is doing anything nefarious or there's anything else going on, that's my implicit bias. And I have to recognize that it's, and, and not necessarily, you know, I, I, try, I don't make myself feel bad about it because it's just, part of who I am, but then just say, okay, what are the objective things that are happening in happening in this circumstance? And is this a reasonable response for my body? Or is this just some sort of, you know, uh, kind of knee jerk reaction? Um, you know, my lizard brain telling me to do something that's not really warranted in this situation. So um, for me, it's just really important to examine when I'm having a reaction to something to say, well, is this, is this a reasonable reaction to this situation? 
Kate, I want to say thank you so much for that transparency and that vulnerability in this space. So when you're working with with organizations around developing, hiring, retaining, um, recruiting, advancing, um, communities of color or trying to create a diverse and inclusive workforce, what are some tips or things that you have found useful that you suggest to your your clients? Yeah, I, well, I think that, you know, um, having conversations within the organization in situations where you're not in a hiring or firing situation, right, because those are always stressful situations, but having um, you know, open conversations with your organization about the goals of the organization and the values of inclusion and diversity are important. Now, I think where people kind of um, struggle with that is that there's conflict involved in that, right? Like someone's going to say something that is offensive to someone else because that's their perspective. Um, and I think allowing that to happen is really important because that's the only way that you can grow. Because if I'm saying something that's offensive to someone else and it's shut down, I don't feel heard. And people who do not feel heard are not happy people. So you you have to let that play out. Obviously, you don't want people to be, you know, um, defamatory or, or, you know, personally offensive, but people should be a little bit uncomfortable in these situations. That's the only way they're going to grow. Um, you know, I have friends, particularly on social media, um, that are uh, people of color or, um, you know, LGBTQ um, friends who will say things that make me uncomfortable or things that I don't understand or things that are outside my perspective. And my initial response is to be like, well, I don't, I don't do that as a white woman, right? Like, I don't do that as a white privileged lawyer woman. Um, and that's okay that that's my initial response, but I always fall back to, well, maybe I do. And let me try to see it from their perspective and let me accept their perspective as their perspective and see how I can do better. Um, I recently read something or saw something about how um, black women um, move out of the way of white women in stores on a, you know, on a, on a general scale. Um, and my first reaction was like, oh, geez, I hope I'm not that rude to anyone, much less to other, you know, women who I care about deeply. Um, but I had to, I stopped and I thought about it and I was like, you know, even if I don't do this, it doesn't hurt me to be cognizant of it. It doesn't hurt me that when I'm in a store, if I'm at Ulta, I'm not just barging past people and to just kind of be aware of, of my own surroundings and the other people in it. So um, allowing people to be a little bit uncomfortable, uh, allowing people to, um, to understand other people's perspectives and try to grow from it, I think is important when you're not hiring and firing because nobody wants to hear when, when they're making a hiring and fire or firing decision. Well, are, you know, is that because so-and-so is a woman or is that because so-and-so is, is black or Hispanic or, or something like that? Nobody wants to hear it in that situation. But if you can kind of examine these relationships and these interactions in more calm settings, I think that that'll solve problems down the road where people will be already examining their own bias. So I want to take this time and just say thank you, Kate, for engaging in this conversation with us about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, those tips on how organizations uh, can work to at least have conversations about diversity and inclusion are extremely 
important point. So thank you so much for that. Um, that wraps it up for this episode of uh, of our show. Uh, we would love to hear from you, what you like, what you don't like, uh, what do you think we could do better? Who would you like to hear from? Those are all things that we're excited to hear about um, on this podcast. And so uh, that's it for today. And this is Andre Cohen from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. And this is Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion at the Mayo Clinic. Have a great day. <laughs>